this marked passage can be redeemed. I have been divorced and remarried. Before I studied this passage, I was like the parishioner that one pastor describes, a woman who told him that hearing this passage read in church felt like having someone dump garbage over her. It didn't matter if she'd cleaned up and put on her Sunday best for church that morning because after hearing these words, she felt as though she couldn't get rid of the stink of her divorce. Much of the commentary I reviewed in preparation for today's sermon was sort of along the lines of, I wouldn't touch that passage with a 10-foot pole. (laughs) You can understand why preachers would flock to the second half of the passage, the warm and fuzzy let the little children come to me part, or choose one of the other lectionary passages for today. The thing is, the gospel message of God's love for all people is in this passage. The challenge is that we have to wade through a lot to get there. Historical and cultural factors, centuries of church teachings. Here's why I think that's worth doing, even on World Communion Sunday, or perhaps especially on World Communion Sunday. Because at its heart, this passage stands against rule-based doctrinal orthodoxy, that we're right and you're not, we're in and you're out, approach to faith that not only separates Christians from Christians, but separates Christians from people of other faiths and people of little or no faith, for that matter. So let's look at the passage. As Jesus travels from Galilee into Judea, he's intercepted by some Pharisees. Throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees represent the most meticulous of the religious rule followers the guardians of the Torah. These Pharisees, maybe some sort of Judean gatekeepers, want to know how knowledgeable and how orthodox Jesus is. They ask him if it is right for a man to divorce his wife. Now before we proceed, we need to recognize that marriage and divorce in first century Judea bear little resemblance to marriage and divorce today. Marriages were arranged by the parents who selected mates for their children based on a complex set of kinship and economic factors that made marriage more like a contract or even a treaty than a romantic or sacred union. Companionship and fulfillment were not part of the equation. We could spend weeks longer talking about the evolution of traditional marriage. But what is really important here is that this passage isn't about marriage. It's about divorce. Jesus was not intending to establish a universal and forever definition of marriage here. He isn't saying everyone has to get married, and he's certainly not addressing gay and lesbian relationships. He's responding to a specific question about rules governing divorce within the first century Jewish understanding of marriage. There were two schools of thought about divorce in Jesus' day. Both believed a man had the right to divorce his wife. One school of thought was fairly strict. A man could only do this if his wife were unfaithful. The other was more lenient. A man could do this if his wife displeased him in any number of ways, including, according to one rabbinic resource, burning her husband's toast. This is the crucial point. 
Either way, the consequences for the woman were devastating. Disgrace, the likelihood of severe economic hardship, and limited prospects for her and her children. If a man chose to divorce his wife for whatever reason, she ended up at the bottom of the social and economic heap. Jesus doesn't really answer the Pharisees' question. The Pharisees are looking for loopholes, and Jesus is focused on the consequences. Rather than fall into their trap by choosing the legally correct method of bringing about the wife's social and economic destruction, he calls them to a new standard. Jesus isn't trying to make things even worse for people who end up divorced. He's trying to protect women and children who were so much more vulnerable before the law than men. And by the way, a woman had no right to divorce her husband for any reason whatsoever. When Jesus suggests that a woman could divorce her husband, when he says, if she divorces her husband and marries another, at verse 12 in this passage, he upends the law and the culture by elevating women to equal partners. To a man, this would have been patently offensive. A woman could divorce a man? Such a teaching would break the law. You can imagine that people might respond by rallying to defend the traditional definition of marriage. But as usual, Jesus doesn't just tell us, he shows us. After all this legal wrangling, what does Jesus do but, again, tighten that screw further? Or, looking at it another way, Jesus widens his embrace even more. The crowds were bringing their children forward in order that Jesus might touch the kids, but the disciples were holding them back. So Jesus says, rather indignantly, Mark adds, let the little children come to me. Don't you dare stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Such as these, weak little children. Such as these least valuable and most vulnerable of society the ones who had no rights in the legal system and little control over their fate. Theirs is the kingdom. Jesus shows us how to put love into action by welcoming the marginalized. Love, not rules. No one I know thinks divorce is the ideal. It is still economically, socially, and emotionally devastating today. But the legalistic approach argued by the Pharisees and twisted out of this very passage by the church over the centuries is nothing short of tragic. It has been used to lock men, women, and their children in abusive or unhealthy relationships in the name of a loving God. What began as a revolutionary teaching based on love justice and equality, has become a rule dogmatically rooted in oppression. Instead of offering healing and welcome to those injured by divorce, the church has excluded and stigmatized them. Love, not rules. William Sloan Coffin wrote that rules are at best signposts, never hitching posts, 
and that there really aren't such a thing as Christian rules, as much as there are acts that are more or less Christian, depending on the motives behind them. He writes, but if we say, down with rules, we must at the same time say, up with persons. And if we exalt freedom as Christians, we must remember that freedom is grounded in love. Christian ethicist Paul Ramsey said, if everything is permitted which Christian love permits, everything is demanded which Christian love requires. So, suggests Coffin, let others say anything goes. The Christian asks, what does love require? Love is the answer to legalism on the one hand and lawlessness on the other. Love is the more rigorous standard, the higher standard to which Jesus held the Pharisees in today's passage and to which he holds us today. Several weeks ago, our session approved our congregational support of Proposition 34. That's the ballot measure that would replace the death penalty with life sentence without possibility of parole. The session's endorsement was not especially radical, given that our denomination has opposed the death penalty since 1959. But it is radically faithful in that it answers the question, what does love require? Current law says that if you do something awful, you deserve to die. In 1959, our General Assembly, believing that capital punishment cannot be condoned by an interpretation of the Bible best based upon the revelation of God's love in Jesus Christ, called on Christians to seek the redemption of evildoers and not their death, and noted that the use of the death penalty tends to brutalize the society that condones it. A higher standard, love not rules. And love, not rules, is where this long, winding path finally meets back up with World Communion Sunday. There are many good reasons that the Christian church split into denominations. Humans are diverse. It makes sense that the Christian church in the world would be diverse. World Communion Sunday is the day we remind ourselves, even confess, that our doctrine and rules must never supplant Christian love and justice. I love being a Presbyterian, but the Mark passage and World Communion Sunday remind me that Presbyterian rules and practices, even our beloved Book of Order, are to serve the purposes of spreading God's love, not building fences or drawing lines in the sand not asserting our doctrinal superiority. Love demands that all our actions reflect a movement toward and not away from each other and not against each other. The week before last, I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, discovering the joys of green chili and the cultural melting pot. Santa Fe was colonized by the Spanish, it was part of Mexico for a while, and it is the home of the ancestral Pueblo. Santa Fe is full of the paraphernalia of tr faith traditions that feel very 
foreign to a North American Presbyterian. Statues and portraits of saints, beads and sage, stations of the cross, drums and rattles. Some of these reflect different tastes and cultural influences in worship, and some reflect important theological differences. In a gift shop called the Monk's Corner, I tried on some clergy stoles that were woven by Native Americans. I'm 99% sure that the woman behind the cash register assumed that I had no clue what they were. Why would a woman be shopping for clergy stoles? But I also found that in that shop there was a little ornament of an image of Saint Gemma, the patron saint of the unemployed. We Presbyterians firmly believe that all believers are the saints and that we can talk directly to God without a go-between. Those are the rules. But I know a woman who will treasure knowing about Saint Gemma, who tells her that the shame that she has been feeling about being unemployed is the concern of a loving God. I was reminded that we do not get to name God all by ourselves, not as individuals, not as Presbyterians. Love, not rules. God's love is so abundant, it feeds the whole world. One of my favorite quotations about marriage is, marriage teaches you loyalty, forbearance, self-restraint, meekness, and a great many other things you wouldn't need if you'd stayed single. <laughs> but we all need these lessons, don't we? So, so that we can approach this table with love for God's people, not rules, and allow that table to transform us. That is the goal. And it is expressed beautifully in a blessing written for World Communion Sunday by writer and artist Jan Richardson. And the table will be wide, and the welcome will be wide, and the arms will be open wide to gather us in, and our hearts will be open wide to receive. And we will come as children who trust there is enough, and we will come unhindered and free. And our aching will be met with bread, and our sorrow will be met with wine. And we will open our hands to the feast without shame, and we will turn toward each other, and we will give up our appetite for despair, and we will taste and know of delight. And we will become bread for a hungering world, and we will become drink for those who thirst, and the blessed will become the blessing, and everywhere will be the feast. Amen. <laughs>